Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. We sing here of temptation and temptation's hour and our need for the mercy of God. And that is uh, our intro, our entree, if you will, to Proverbs chapter 1, where we're turning this morning. If you weren't with us last week, uh, we have wrapped up about a year-long series in the Gospel of Mark. And last week, we began to look at this book of wisdom in the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs. You'll find it right about the middle of your Bibles. And I want to begin with just a brief review of what we covered last week. Last week we started by saying what Proverbs is not. We said that Proverbs is not just a collection of moralistic or common sense do's and don'ts for anyone off the street to know how to live a good life. No, this book is a gift from God for His people whom He has redeemed and called into a covenant relationship with Him. God had given Israel His law, and then He gave Israel's king, Solomon, more wisdom than any man on earth. He gave these blessings so that Israel might know wisdom and righteousness, that they might flourish and receive blessing as His people rather than suffer unto death. In Proverbs God comes to His people whom He redeemed for Himself, and He says, My sons, my daughters, here is the way of life and blessing. There is the way of death and destruction. Come, live in wisdom in the fear of the Lord, and find life. Solomon tells us that he wrote this book for the simple, for the youth, and the wise, that they might know wisdom and gain instruction for life. But Solomon told us right up front that the beginning of wisdom, the the foundation for a life of wisdom, that precondition, if we want wisdom, is the fear of the Lord. No one can just wake up and decide to become wise in their own efforts, even with the help of this book. No, wisdom that yields life and blessing must begin with the fear of the Lord, that joyful awe that recognizes who God is in all of His majesty and who we are as His creatures. A fear of the Lord that humbly seeks Him and submits our wills to His. That is the necessary precondition for wisdom. Of course, we have to add as a brief comment, over the pages of Scripture, we will learn that none of us will fear the Lord or have any chance of living this wisdom and righteousness without the Spirit of God at work in us. And for all of us, we will also learn that the only hope we have of receiving the Spirit of God is through Jesus Christ and through faith in Him. That's why it shouldn't surprise us when we come to Colossians in the New Testament in chapter 2, and we read that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Because apart from Christ, this book will give you many wise principles, but you will have no power to live it out in the fear of the Lord. But in Christ, in Christ, we will find in Proverbs a gift from God 
for wisdom and for righteousness, for blessing and for life as we reflect on his word and on his character and on his created order in order to live life as God intends it to be lived. And so this is what we saw last week about the nature of Proverbs and the foundation of a life of wisdom and the fear of the Lord. But having reviewed these preliminaries, we want to turn now to the official beginning of Solomon's case for wisdom. I said last week that the first nine chapters of Proverbs are Solomon's case for wisdom, and we're going to begin that this morning. And so I want to start reading with verse 8, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8, and read through the end of the chapter. Would you read with me from God's Word? Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We'll have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men they lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have the fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster." Father, how I pray that you would use your word in our hearts and lives this morning, that we might be drawn to you and might know you and follow you. And I pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. On our recent trip to Skagway, we docked, uh, excuse me, to Alaska, we docked in the port of Skagway. Skagway is an old mining town, and it boasts a population of 1,217 that's just barely enough people to run all of the shops, restaurants, and tourist attractions. 
for the cruise ships that dump between seven and ten times the population every single day between May and September. Well, so you can imagine what it's like to get off in a ten-block town with between seven and ten thousand other people. And so we quickly escaped the press of that crowd, went three blocks east, and came to the trailhead of several hiking trails up the mountain. Now, as we stood there at the base of the trails with 14 children between the ages of 4 and 17, we thought, how do we know which trail we should take? Unfortunately, we have the all-knowing internet, and so we could pull up a map, and that map would tell us two different destinations. We could go to the reservoir or the upper lake, and it told us how far each trail was, and it told us how hard each trail was, and so we could make an informed decision about which hike to take. Now, wouldn't it be nice if every decision in life had a map like that? Make this decision, and it will take this long, and it will be this hard, and this will be the result. Make that decision, and it's going to be that hard, and this is what's going to happen. Of course, we don't have that kind of map for every decision, but that is exactly what Solomon is seeking to offer us in these first nine chapters of Proverbs. His son and the youth in Israel stand at the trailhead of life, and they are going to receive invitations to two different paths that they might walk, wisdom in the fear of the Lord and folly that joins itself to wickedness. And Solomon, in our passage this morning and in these chapters, seeks to warn and guide his son and us by telling us where each path leads and what will happen on the way. And so what we want to do this morning is examine each of these paths, the path of wisdom and the path of folly, to see what it will look like and where it will end up. And we'll start by looking at the path of folly, which Solomon describes in verses 10 to 19. Verse 10, Solomon tells us about the invitation we're going to receive. My son, he says, if sinners entice you, do not consent. And then Solomon lays out why this invitation might seem attractive. First, he notes the lure of companionship. The lure of companionship camaraderie, the excitement of doing things together. Come with us, they say in verse 11. Throw in your lot with us. We'll have one purse together, they say in verse 14. And isn't this so often the appeal of folly early on? Any one of us long to be accepted. None of us likes to be all alone in life, and that's particularly true when we are young and we're figuring out who we are and what our place is in life, and we need a a friend group. And as a result, this appeal to come, be one of us, is particularly enticing. How many of you have had the experience, that painful awkwardness, on the first day of school in a new school, or maybe being a visitor to a church you've never been before, and you're all alone, and you know the relief when someone says, hey, come with me. We're going to go do this now. How many of us could tell a story, maybe from our middle school or high school or or college years, of when we did something we never would have done on our own, but we did it because everyone else was doing it, and we found a place with them, 
and they invited us to join us. And we need to expect this kind of lure and invitation, the power of enticement when someone says, come with us. And the lure of that will not be any less because the invitation is to do sin or foolishness. Well, Solomon notes that there's another lure as well, the lure of profit. You see it in verse 13. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. He says, we'll lie in wait. It'll be an ambush. We'll swallow them alive. In other words, they have no chance. This is a perfectly safe plan. And the result will be fantastic riches and precious goods. So not only are we invited to join them, we're offered desirable things that we will enjoy that we couldn't have had if we hadn't joined them. That's the invitation to folly. Now, maybe some of you are, are listening to this and you think, well, that's, uh, that's all well and good. That's a, that's a good warning. But I'd never kill anybody. I mean, maybe, maybe this warning was necessary for some, but I'm in no danger of joining a gang that ambushes and murders innocent people and steals their stuff. But if that's what you're thinking, I think you're missing Solomon's point. As any good author does, Solomon paints one specific scenario here, but that's only one example to illustrate his point. The principle is that every one of us is going to be enticed to sin, and the lures of companionship and of something desirable or gain will be at the heart of that temptation. Put in any number of situation here, drugs or drunkenness. Try it. We're all going to do it. Sexual temptation. What? You haven't experienced it? Come with me. Godlessness and rebellion against the Lord. Hey, we've all done this and things have been great. And what has religion really done for you anyway? Gossip, cliques, and selfishness. Well, we don't want anything to mess with our group, and, you know, she's really not our type anyways. Lies and deceit. Look, we really need this, and we need your help. So do your part, and everything will turn out well. Or the gain. You've got to try this. It's such a rush. But it feels so good. This is so much freeing, so much freer than that life of restriction. Our profit margin and our pay will be so much higher. If you don't do this, you're going to be on your own and you're going to miss out. See, in these ways, we could continue to multiply examples, but in these ways and so many more, the path of folly is marked by the lure of companionship and of gaining something fun, pleasurable, or desirable, and we will be enticed by it. That's what Solomon is telling us. But having described the invitation, Solomon goes on to describe the consequences of accepting this invitation. He says in verse 15, My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. And I love the implication of that phrase. That phrase is literally saying, don't even put your little toe on that path. Don't go in that direction. As one commentator puts it, do not even entertain the temptation as a possibility. For even considering temptation as an option sparks our desires and opens the door to folly. Well, why such a strong warning? Is the path of folly really this dangerous? Well, verses 16 to 18 tell us. 
Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. In vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. This is such a brilliant image. Now, in Proverbs, we're going to see a lot of imagery, and a lot of it is wonderful, but I love this one in particular. You may not be overly experienced in uh, hunting birds with nets, but you can all picture what would happen if you try to pick up a big net with some bread in it and walk up to a group of sparrows and throw the net in front of them and say, here, birdies, hop in. What's going to happen? They're all going to fly away. Solomon says, even the birds know it's a terrible idea to hang around the net, despite the enticing bait in it. But these sinners, those who pursue the path of folly, actually go a step worse. They actually set the trap themselves right in front of themselves for their own capture. It would be like a group of birds flying in with the net in their own talons and trapping themselves in the net and saying, here I am, enjoy your dinner. Or, or like a deer walking up with the gun and setting it at the hunter's feet and then standing in profile for him. Well, we think that would never do happen. This is utterly preposterous because God has given even animals more than enough common sense not to do that. And yet we, people created in the image of God, at times have less sense than pigeons in a moose, consciously choosing to do that which will lead to our judgment and our death. And that is the height of folly. Of course, it never looks that obvious in the moment, does it? Living for self seems so appealing. Living just like the culture and the world around us feels rational. It doesn't look like it's going to lead to our death. But the hardest trails often start out easy. And this is why Solomon is writing. He's describing the trail. He's, gonna, he's describing what it will look like and where it leads so that we know ahead of time what will happen if we take this path, if we're willing to listen. And if we trust the Lord and believe His Word and His warnings, that will give us the strength to turn down the invitation to the path of folly and its efforts to entice us. Well, that's path number one. In verse 20, Solomon turns to path number two to look at the call of wisdom. Now, in reality, the next several chapters are going to spell out this appeal and this summons of wisdom. But we have the initial invitation here in chapter 1. And that's what we want to turn and look at next. In verse 20, wisdom cries aloud in the streets. She raises her voices in the marketplace, calling to the simple to turn and follow her. Notice that this is a public invitation. This isn't some secret door in a back alley that only those who know the password can find. No, it's a loud, public invitation so that no one is without excuse. And wisdom's offer is simple. It's straightforward. And it is astonishingly abundant. If you turn at my reproof, Behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. See, this is no 
hey, why don't you come over for lunch and I'll give you a little advice while we eat. No, this is if you turn from folly and seek wisdom, wisdom is there to be found and it will be found in abundance. Wisdom says literally, I will drench you with my thoughts and words and attitudes, as one commentator puts it, covering you in them so that they saturate you and fill you inside and out. If you seek me, this is the abundance I have to offer. What a promise that that wisdom makes here. But if I want to pause for just a a minute on this, this promise of wisdom, because if we remember how we get wisdom, this verse becomes even richer, I think. How do we get wisdom? Well, James chapter 1 verse 5 tells us that if we want wisdom, we are to ask God for it in faith. We'll find this out in Proverbs chapter 2 as well. Seeking wisdom is none other than seeking God, seeking Him in faith. We ask ourselves another question. Remember Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2 talks about the Spirit of the Lord And it describes God's Holy Spirit as the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so if we begin to think of these other scriptures and we come back to Proverbs 1.23 and we find wisdom promising to pour out my spirit to you and to make my words known to you, I don't think we can help but connect God's own abundant promises. When you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. That he will make a new covenant through the Messiah, Christ, in which he will write his law on our hearts. His law that is the source of wisdom, he will write on our hearts. That he will pour out his spirit on us. Joel chapter 2, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord will be poured out on us through Christ dwelling within us and producing the fruit of wisdom in our lives. And we start to realize wisdom's promise here is a promise of wisdom. Yes, that wisdom will be found in abundance, but but that's found by seeking the Lord. And the Lord's promise is that He will pour Himself out on us, His spirit of wisdom and understanding and the fear of the Lord to fill us and produce a harvest of righteousness and wisdom in our lives. And so these verses become yet another reason to rejoice in Christ and the abundant blessing of God who, if we will heed the call and turn to wisdom in the fear of the Lord, will direct us to Christ. And in Him, we will be drenched and saturated by His Word and His Spirit that we might have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge dwelling in us. See, this is the abundant path that wisdom offers us. So here's the invitation to wisdom and its abundance, but wisdom doesn't stop there. Wisdom wants to add a warning in verses 24 to 31 to any who would refuse to listen. If anyone hears this invitation of wisdom but says, no, I don't need that path. I'm not going to listen to that appeal. What will happen? Well, Wisdom tells us because they refuse to listen and want nothing to do with wisdom, when calamity strikes, wisdom will laugh. Then they will call, but wisdom will not answer. They chose their way 
verse 31 says. They will have to eat the fruit of their choices. Could there be more sobering words than that? Now, I want us to understand what what Proverbs is saying here. Proverbs is not denying the reality that God's surprising grace and mercy at times breaks in on the lives of people who are in the midst of sin and folly and calls them to himself. I mean, just, just think of the example of Saul in the book of Acts, hating the church, seeking to put anyone who loves Christ in prison until Jesus comes and arrests him on the road to Damascus and calls him to himself. I think about the story one of our supported missionaries, Stephen Beck, told us here uh, several years ago, the story of a, a terrorist who came to a church in Africa to kill the pastor. He sat in the back of the service and decided to wait until the service was over to do this deed. But during the service, he was unexpectedly gripped and convicted by the Word of God. And he went up afterwards to that pastor not to kill him, but to say, how can I know this Jesus that you just proclaimed? Now today, by podcasts and radios, proclaiming the gospel and leading many Muslims to Christ. That's the kind of God we worship. And many of you could tell a similar story of God coming and grabbing hold of you in the midst of your sin when you weren't seeking Him and drawing you to Himself. And so Proverbs is not denying that reality at all. But Proverbs is making two points. First, Proverbs is stating the clear wisdom truth that there will come a point when our folly leads to consequences. And no matter of saying I'm sorry will take those consequences away. And we've probably all been in a place like that in life at some level, whether a child or otherwise. But some of these consequences are worse than others. Just ask the person who listened to his friends and got drunk one time and tried to drive home and on his way home killed a person driving drunk. He may be deeply, deeply sorry, but that sorrow will not take away the consequences that he will suffer for his actions. And Proverbs is saying, beware. If you continue down the path of folly, it will lead to consequences. And oftentimes, those consequences will not be set away, even if you regret those choices. But secondly, Proverbs is making an even more significant point, and it's making an eternal point. Proverbs is saying that the destruction of the foolish is certain. There will come a time when it is too late to repent. And that time, of course, comes when life comes to an end. And we don't know when that will be. For any one of us, that could be today or tomorrow. How many of us have attended funerals of young people we never expected to be at their funeral? But when a life of folly ends, the just judge of all will decide your case. And while God does not take glee in the death of the wicked, as Ezekiel tells us, He does rejoice when justice is done. And before the throne of God, the utter ridiculousness of our sinful blindness will be exposed in all of its laughable folly. And at that point, we may call out for wisdom, 
but wisdom will not answer, for it will be too late. Theologian Bruce Waltke sums up this point so well. He writes, for those who turn away from the fear of the Lord when they had an opportunity to listen, there will be no second chance after death, but before judgment. And that is true for very important reasons. If there were a second chance for us after death, but before judgment, then that would mean that a life of sin and rejecting God would not really have eternal consequences after all. It would mean that we actually can live however we want to now without eternal consequences. If choices made now do not have eternal consequence, they lose their dignity and worth. If choices made now do not lead to eternal consequences, it would actually validate the fool's belief that they can treat life carelessly and do whatever they want. And that perspective is justified. And so Waltke says, people deny the doctrine of final judgment because they do not want to believe that this life and my simple choices to be free and do what I want to do and do what feels good and right now actually have eternal weight. But there is such a dignity to our life now. God has created our life and our decisions now with such dignity that they will lead to either eternal life or eternal death. And so my question for you is, is there anyone here this morning who has not considered that what you do and how you respond to the invitation of the Lord will lead to such eternal life or death? And if not, wisdom calls to you this morning. It cries out to you to turn before it is too late and listen to her voice. She would direct you to the fear of the Lord, who in his grace and mercy has extended one astounding hope of forgiveness and salvation from the just consequences of our sin and folly. And that is nothing less than faith in Jesus Christ. And just consider... The more we contemplate the justice of God's judgment against sinners, the more we will treasure Jesus, the one God has given us to rescue us from that judgment. And the point of Proverbs is that God has warned us. None of us here is without excuse. It is not as if a sudden unexpected cliff suddenly dumps us into an abyss. No, the warning signs have come repeatedly with miles to spare. Wisdom proclaims it in the street corners if we will listen. So we have two paths before us. A path of folly and a path of wisdom. And in verses 32 and 33, Solomon gives us a final summary. On path number one, the simple are killed by their turning away and fools are destroyed by their complacency. Will you notice real quick the pairing of words there? I think it's significant because we learn that both the active decision to turn away from the Lord and reject Him and pursue wickedness, but also the passive complacency to just keep living my life the way I want to unwilling to repent and follow the Lord, both 
lead to judgment if we will listen to this warning. As I read this warning, I couldn't help but think of the sad disaster a month ago of the Titan submersible. Many of you probably read of that, that dive to the Titanic wreckage that led to the death of five on board. Well, in the aftermath of that disaster and the death of those five, multiple voices have come forward to talk about the concerns they expressed about the Titan and its safety and about the unwillingness of CEO Stockton Rush to listen to their warnings. Stockton Rush actually refused to have the vessel classed, having a vessel classed as having an independent investigation come, look at the structure of your vessel, and tell you how deep it is safe to go. He refused to do that and said current standards are always the enemy of innovation. His top experts quit the project over concerns of safety and reliability. Multiple people warned others privately never to get in that thing. And yet five people got in. Proverbs is warning us not just about physical death, but about eternal death. And oh, may the simple, the young, and the wise heed his warning. But the second path, The path of wisdom and the fear of the Lord leads to great blessing. Do you see the words that describe the blessing of wisdom in verse 33? All who follow wisdom will dwell secure and be at ease without dread of disaster. Now that's a pretty substantial promise. And we might think, what could possibly guarantee someone's security, ease, and no fear of disaster? What could possibly be greater than all of the the evil and wickedness and human threat and natural disasters in all of the world? And the answer, of course, is the Lord, the Almighty One, and the wisdom that comes from a life lived in the fear of the Lord. After all, Psalm 34 verse 7 declares that the Lord, the Almighty One, and His angels encamp around those who fear Him and deliver them. That is the security of His promise. And that promise only deepens when we come to the New Testament, when this God sends His Son, Jesus, to redeem us and secure our salvation. And we read His Son declaring in John chapter 10, verse 28 and 29, I give my sheep eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And my Father, who is greater than all, no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. Now that's security and peace and safety so that we can dwell at ease. So here are the two paths before you this morning. The enticement to folly and sin, complacency, And rejecting the Lord or wisdom in the fear of the Lord. And the question for each one of us is which path will you take? Let's pray. Father, in your word, you have blessed us with this gift, this map of life. This is not just the random musings or the speculations of some ancient king. These are the words of our God 
the one who dwells from eternity past to eternity future, the one who created life itself. We read all Scripture, including Proverbs, is breathed out by God that we might know what we need to know for life. Father, may we heed these warnings and turn away from the enticement of sin and folly. May we turn to you. May we seek wisdom in the fear of the Lord. May we look to Christ in whom all these treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found, that we might know security and peace and dwell at ease in your protection. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.